And then Plato said, philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. It hit me like zap. I can still feel, I mean, I felt it all my life, and he's absolutely right. Philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. How often do you think about what happens after we die? Have you ever known anyone who has died and come back? Maybe you have. It's actually not all that uncommon. My guest today has made a career of studying this phenomenon. His name is Raymond Moody. He's got a PhD. He's also a medical doctor. He's a world-renowned scholar, lecturer, and researcher, and he's widely recognized as the leading authority on near-death experiences, as he coined the term NDE, or near-death experience. He's the best-selling author, the best-selling author of many books, including Life After Life, Glimpses of Eternity, The Light Beyond, Coming Back, and more. His work profoundly illuminates our understanding of death, dying, and grief, and offers compelling answers to the question, is there an afterlife? I read two of Dr. Moody's books. I read Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife, and what I believe is his latest book called God is Bigger Than the Bible. I really appreciate Dr. Moody's wide-ranging curiosity, and I also appreciate the honesty and the intellectual rigor with which he pursues this question of an afterlife. In this conversation, we explore so much. We talk about philosophy. We talk about nonsense. We talk about commonly reported experiences of those who have died and returned to life, or at least those who reported having an experience along those lines. Dr. Moody is a skeptic, as he says. He draws no particular conclusion, although he does have his own experiences, including his own near-death experience, which we also talk about. This conversation is one of those where I pursue my curiosity in full intensity. So if you are a seeker, if you're curious, if you want to more fully understand the universe or life, you might enjoy this. With that, this two-hour conversation with my friend and kindred spirit, I think, fellow seeker, lover of knowledge, philosopher, Dr. Moody, or as he says, Raymond. You can also find him online at lifeafterlife.com or of course with a Google search or find his books on amazon.com or at any fine bookseller near you. Okay, with that, enjoy this conversation with my friend, Dr. Raymond Moody. Well, Raymond, welcome to the School for Good Living. What a, just a pleasure and delight to be here with you, Brilliant. We had a little for conversation here, and you're just such a, a really nice person to be with. What a privilege. Well, will you tell me, please, what is life about? And I want to follow that question because I know your life study has been around uh, death. And so I want to follow it up as well as what is death about? I grew up with old people. My, it's like, it was a complicated story, but I identified more with my grandparents, my Waddleton grandparents. My dad was in the war. I mean, it was chair, then medical school. Just, and, and so um, I, you know, death was just sort of part of the picture because old people were always dying. And my grandmother, Moody, was more talked about funerals all the time. So, you know, that was the background to me. I was into astronomy and mind expansion. And Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll, that was filled my childhood. I remember sitting out on the porch reading Dr. Seuss in a rocking chair when I was a kid. And because I realized that nonsense literature portrays the world in a very real way, it's much better than literal language. So then I went to the University of Virginia intent on becoming an astronomer. 
wanted to take class in philosophy too. So, all right, Raymond, read Plato's Republic, first assignment. And then Plato said, philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. It hit me like zap. I can still feel, I mean, I felt it all my life. And he's absolutely right. Philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. What does he mean by that? Well, he means several things. And one is that this question of life after death is the one that everything else comes turns on, right? That if there is a life after death, then this whole existence we're in now takes on a wholly different context and meaning. See, I mean, it's just like the radical nature of this. Is there or isn't there that it, it's it everything else turns on that yeah. that concerns us so that was what hit me about it and um then about three years later i heard from um one of my philosophy professors that a wonderful man right there in charlottesville dr george ritchie had had one of these experiences and so why um took the opportunity. George was always so generous to students and all his lectures. And, and I, I just listened to him. Wow, Zap. Just holy man. So that was kind of a big, you know, that was where I guess God came into my life conscious, more or less. Yeah, that's that's something I definitely want to ask you about. And then thank you for providing that background. Um, I want to go back and touch on a, a few things that you that you um, said. One is I'm curious what your view is on why. Why did philosophy have such a hold on you when you had gone to school thinking that you would study astronomy and the physical universe? But then when you encountered this work and, and uh, Plato and Socrates, why, why was it something that just grabbed a hold of you and you, or you dove into with both feet? When I came across this word philosophy and I said to dad, what is philosophy? And he went immediately into this. It is like this wonderful thing that is done by these very wise men. It was all just like, and, you know, just a very, very, you know, praising this, like, um, judgment of the field of philosophy and how wonderful it was. And um, that was one element of it. And I, even in high school, I'd been interested in philosophy. I'd read some philosophy things, too, although the astronomy was my just that may and and really paradoxically too the philosophical sweep of of astronomy was what brought me to it in the first place right i mean seven years old built my own telescope i gotta laugh now but it worked and um and and looking out into that you know expanse and having the thought that many people all probably everybody listening this is going to say, yeah, me too. You have this thought when you're about that age, um, how big is this thing? Yeah. And so your mind zooms out to the wall, but then you say, hey, just a minute, it's got to be something on the other side of a wall, doesn't there? But then the other thing is it goes on forever, and that's, that's mind-boggling. And I remember that was that experience was really part of the – it was concurrent with my waking up to the – amazement of consciousness in the first place and the realization that you're never going to go have any much knowledge at all but that it's fun to i mean it's the greatest pleasure you know to to seek knowledge i mean along making the creative along with that i certainly think so right and and it's and we're reminded of that even in the etymology of the word philosophy right yeah yeah a lover of wisdom yeah, and, and so concurrently with that, too, I realized, I mean, see, it wasn't a bad thing to me to realize it was nonsense, because I went right to Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll, and oh, yeah, yeah, and comic books, Uncle Scrooge comic books, and Donald Duck comic books by a great Disney artist, whose name is was Carl Barks, and of whom 
um, Lucas and Spielberg have said that he's a national treasure. And, that, you know, all these amazing books that just changed so many people my age. You might take a look at it. It's, it's really mind-bending. Carl Barks, that's, that's fun. Well, th- well, thank you for that. So from there, <clears throat> earning a PhD in philosophy and another PhD and then an MD, Uh, Actually, that thing, somehow I saw that thing about a PhD in psychology and that I don't know how that got misprinted or something. But actually, um, what should have been, it's it's like I was a professor of psychology. Okay, I have a I had a PhD in philosophy and I have been uh, in a and an MD and a psychiatry residency. And I have also served as a professor of psychology. Okay, got it. So from from there, this journey of learning and growth, uh, looking, which I think is so remarkable, and probably as you said, there's developmental stages, and there, it's a, it's like a path that we're all on, perhaps that we often begin by looking outside, but inevitably it seems we come to look inside. Yeah. Right. And this work that you've done in as a particularly as a as a doctor, I realize these are not separate necessarily, you know, these, these roles you play or the hats you wear, so to speak. But in this work of talking with people who have had death experiences, near death experiences crossed over, gone to the afterlife perhaps, which by the way, I do want to interject this just about a month ago, I was reading something online and I heard the joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Right. I had never, ever got in my 40 plus years of living the double meaning of to get to the other side. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was like a. I had never thought of that either. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, holy mackerel. I never thought of it either. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Right. That it goes from just a triviality to a spiritual statement. Oh, my God. Brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So, okay. so, so I have a few questions. And by the way, one of these comes from my mother, because I talked to her yesterday about the fact that you and I would be talking today and she had a question that she wanted me to ask you. So I'll, I'll get to that. But um, I do want to ask, you talked about God just a few minutes ago. And as I understood, that was in relation to people who have, I'm not sure what you call it, crossed over, passed on, something, gone to the afterlife. But I do. So we can go in a lot of different directions, but I but I'd love to ask you about what are some of the commonalities, right? Because not everyone has the same experience, but there are similarities. Right. And so I'm, and then, as you mentioned, that you had your own experience, which is one thing to research, but it's another to experience firsthand. So I'd love maybe if you could start in the macro. Well, let's start with the personal. Will you tell us, tell me about your your experience? I understand you've had You've had, um, is it a, a thyroid issue? Yeah, just like a, uh, I had retrospectively, when I was diagnosed with myxedema in May of 1985, and they hadn't, could find no measurable thyroid hormones in my body. And my TSH, which gets high when your thyroid is low, was by far the highest that any of my doctors had ever seen. And they had traced this back retrospectively in my medical record to 1966. And, um, but it wasn't caught at that time. It's retrospectively, the symptom that was missed was a single white eyelash. Wow. Which I learned in my medical training is a a sign of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I had it and I noticed it and I asked him, they just, so nothing, you know, it's just thought it dismissed it as idiosyncratic. And then I had to have this other, and see, nobody could believe that I was, having a thyroid problem because my output was very high. I mean, I was, uh, so it didn't make sense that I could be having all these degrees and all these, doing all these things and having a thyroid problem. So, 
And so, yeah, and it got so bad. I mean, I went into the great darkness. I mean, I was just a lot of period. I don't remember of that, which is there, this, the part of the thyroid condition that when you get into that uh, mixed state, it's, it's a kind of uh, organic, like dementia, I guess, really. And um, so coming out of it was just like the most amazing thing. I began to see colors, which I, the vibrancy of colors. I mean, it just, it's indescribable, just like this reemergence. And during that time, um, attempted to kill myself, I guess. I mean, you know, it's just too, I remember the despair, but I don't remember the circumstances very much. So anyway, and so, and so then um, during that time, not like a full-blown near-death experiences, the out-of-body and all like that. No, mine was different. I, it's like, I like to say that I was more like I saw the city limits sign. Mm. But the... What I very definitely experienced was the layering of reality, which is these um, things that people say that it's like George Ritchie said that he uh, that, that he was in the presence of Christ. He said he was sort of shown three different realms of life after death and one realm where these people were just stumbling around, you know, trying to just like focused on who were dead, but didn't know it. <laughs> but, you know, there's humor to it, too. It's because, you know, it's like, wake up, you know, you're in a, it's like when your wife is waking up in the morning, she's kind of, oh, you got to say, hey, hey wake up. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like Earth. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And then he said, there's this, he said, George said, I don't know what he said, this was or 60s, and he would say, and Christ, he said, will wave, another wave of his arm of light, he says. He said the whole scene changed, and he saw into a whole different dimension of reality, which was, he said, the best way, he said, if you try to put Caltech and MIT and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and, you know, University of California and UVA, all of them squeezed into one. He said, you can't even begin to imagine this. He said that it was people whose avocation who just seemed they're into seeking knowledge. <clears throat> and um, he said he, he sort of saw into one aspect of that place that he said you could call it. He said, you'd have to say it was like the library. And he said, and one section of this library consisted of the holy books of the universe. Now, I would say that that, that but when you think of the religions that might have, you know, acknowledged that kind of domain, it's very interesting, right? And so then another wave, Christ's arm light. And so then he sees around, he didn't see, go into it. He said, you couldn't get out of it. What you're in it. it was like, he said it was like cities of light and that all the people there, were, you know, these, and you know, light. And it's like a civilization constructed out of light. And, you know, all of these are things I've heard from numerous people, but all of these the ones like this are always the ones that are the cardiac arrest went on so long that you just, you know, it's impossible to believe, but, you know, they happen. And, um, and George's was one of those. He was the doctor, Francie said, uh, who was, you know, brought him back to life by injecting adrenaline into his heart, said, I've never seen such an unusual thing in my 40 years of practicing medicine, he said, you know, George Ritchie was dead. He said for nine minutes, at least. And you were asking about some of the common features. Yeah, and, that's right. So first yeah. of all, just acknowledging that in your career, you've what when you began, as I understand, and you can correct this or add to it as appropriate, that you didn't know anyone had these 
afterlife or near-death experiences. And then you learned it was common to the Greeks and other cultures. And then, although it's not something that we talk about publicly often in our society, or we don't know how to discuss one by one teaching classes and working with patients, you found this is actually a very common experience. Yeah. Yeah. And anybody who investigates can find that it's, um, what well, this was known throughout history. It's in Plato. So you can find it all throughout, but see back in those days, it was rather uncommon to, um, to almost die and recover, you know, but in the sixties and seventies, the development of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, people were being brought back from that state all the time. So that's when I, I really started investigating it in uh, 1969. I I knew two cases before, but then when I started being a philosophy professor, I just started hearing this from my students in connection with reading the Phaedo. This is what people come up. It's just like my grandma had this experience or I. And uh, then my colleagues, you know, the other professors and, and all. Yeah, this happened. Me, so then I went to medical school in '72, and that's how it developed. It was what was the commonality of it was so astonishing because you, back in those days, the civic clubs were all male provinces, and they were run by the movers and shakers in this these little towns. And so I would, you know, oh, this professor over to the university is saying he's talked to people, and so let's invite him. Over. And so then, you know, always, and, and then they all invite you, right? Because they got to have a lecture every week. And so these are the people in town who are the prominent people. And just, it was invariable. Dr. Moody, I've never told anybody this, but, and so that's how it all accumulated. And um, in medical school, the access, right, where I could go right there and talk to patients in the hospital who had recently been resuscitated. The way it begins, though, most commonly is people say, I heard my doctor say he's dead or we've lost him. He's gone or the doctor or nurse or somebody else. And, but to me, you know, gosh, I was, and this is a, a comment I've heard all over the world and multiple different, form, you know, like little slight verbal differences, but it's all. But I, would, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. Because all of a sudden, people say they, they leave their bodies. It's like you're sitting in back. You're looking at it from a distance, typically above. And people say that they can understand perfectly what the doctors and nurses or other people present are communicating, not through their auditory sense, though. They say they've begun, they're aware of what these people are thinking. And that um, from their point of view, at first, they're puzzling, how can it be? And here I am up here, I'm looking at me down there, you know, what is this? And they, um, they realize that they can't communicate with the doctor or nurse. They say, I tried to say, what is this, huh? And nobody could see me, no, uh, and nobody could hear me. I tried to touch them to get their attention. I just went right through, didn't make contact. So then at some point, the realization comes, oh, this is what you call death, where then begins in a transition into some other kind of realm of consciousness or realm of reality. Um, which they say words immediately fail that you just go into this zone that is beyond words and that nonetheless, it's people seem to resort instinctively worldwide to the same frame of expression, even without, you know, saying it, you know, still saying it's beyond words. The, the way they put it, they say, and became aware of a passageway or a tunnel or tube or hallway. I went through this and I came out on the other side into this incredibly brilliant and warm and loving light. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so I, people say, I say light, I could just well say love. It doesn't make any difference which way you say it. And this comfort, peace, people say that they, 
see or in the presence of relatives or friends of theirs who've already died, who appear there to be there in a greeting committee. I just always wondered if they have a little hat with welcome on it. Just <laughs> kidding about that. I used to be a comedian, by the way. Forgive me these lapses. But um, they say that it's not like you see a physical body there. It's, it's like... Um, but it's recognizably the, your loved one. You can tell by there is a form, it's, but not material. It's, it's, I guess, the best way of saying it. And that you know them by the memories and personalities. And uh, then at some point, as people often say, everything else just kind of disappears. And they are surrounded by a holographic uh, panorama, for want of a better term, um, which is that, first of all, that time stands still. We are here. There's no time anymore. And that you are surrounded by this panoramic view of every single thing that you have ever done in your life, which you see then from a double perspective, you know, not just from the perspective you had when you were doing the action, but rather from the viewpoint, empathic viewpoint of the other people who were involved with that. So mm -hmm. right? like you're suddenly in this panorama, you see not just what you, your side of it is like how that was received. And all of this is timeless, right? And it's very often in the presence of a being of sheer compassion and light. The Christians tend to say Christ, you know, Jews tend to say God or an angel. Some people just say a light, you know, a being of light. It's like a presence of compassion who sees everything this is far beyond words but they say when you're trying to recount it you have to say it's like it's as though he asked a question right or the being asked and it was how have you learned to love mm -hmm. yeah and uh, and you know various formulations right but the focus is this is on love yeah. amazing well, thank you for, for sharing that and, and breaking that down. This leads to one of the questions I'm really eager to ask, and it's taken me about an hour to get here, <laughs> but, but it's this in my research of this work of near death experiences that people who come back almost universally report three things, a decreased fear of death yeah. an increased appreciation for life yeah. and a greater sense of purpose. There you go. I would say as they're coming back, they say whatever they were chasing before. I've been chasing now. Some people chase sex or power or money or fame. But whatever they were chasing, they say that when you come back from this, you realize what this is all about is learning to love. Another thing people say it has related to the purpose is people say that I shortly thereafter, I went down to the local university signed up for a course or it, it inspires the a process and knowledge. It eliminates the fear of death. Not that they would want to die in a painful or unpleasant way. It's just, it's, there's no more fear of death. Yeah. So the, the question, occasionally art is occasionally people are become artists. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that makes sense, right? If you can't describe an experience in words, but you feel you want to share something, whether it's music or, or painting or dance or, or something. But the, the, so the question I have is this, if, if this is such a common um, report or phenomenon that people come back and they have these, what I would say, these benefits, right? Of they no longer fear death as they did. They, they appreciate things so much more and they have more clarity and, specifically around loving. The question is, can we, or how can we have that same kind of transformation without having to die <laughs> or cross over? I just 
try to ask God to help me with my problems. And I know that I'm not competent. And it's my family, you know, Chris, where I, it's like direct the, the prayer and take care of the kids. And, you know, and me, as I'm 77, I'm tired of ringing duty. But um, keep, take care of me on behalf of them is the way I'm looking at it. And so in regard to the question you ask, I'm not really good on the big picture on how this could be used, see. In terms of, I understand the social value that could come from it. Mm. You know, I do. I mean, to some degree, except that what people are saying but I don't know how that would translate into it. I just have no idea. But but here's one thing I could say. <laughs> Brilliant. With, with the greatest confidence. Um, because not me, because I hammered this out since I was a kid. And throughout my career as a philosophy professor and, um, and psychiatrist. But... Um, I think what is possible, what is really, and I absolutely claim now with the desire to be refuted in a way. I'm not saying trying to put, set out a new ideology here or to pat myself on the back. But rather what I'm saying is that, in my opinion, there is a major, confirmable, verifiable breakthrough in the genuine, rigorous, rational investigation of the question of life after death. And that it is confirmable in the sense that anybody who works through this in their own minds and follows the argument and does the mental exercises that come with it will be able to, in their own minds, to cross over that barrier, psychological and logical barrier, that separates this life from that life. Now, I immediately want to say this is not for new age believers with the, a new version of um, 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 no. This is not something magical that I can wave a wand. This is a a sort of course that I worked out beginning in 1969 through throughout my teaching career and workshops. And it's like, which is the, it just got, you know, I just am so grateful and embarrassed in a way about the comments from the many students and all this just so nice. But the, what the end of this is for the question that you and I are discussing right now is question of life after death is that, in the real world, not quite the not the world of parapsychology, these people who are deluded by their pseudoscience or and nice people. This is not a personal, these are dear friends of mine, and they know my point of view. All right, but it's just in it's it's an incoherent statement to say that in 2022 that science could contribute to the question of life after death. That's just ridiculous to anybody who really wants to think it through rather than just want it to be as they think it is, you know, want it to be. But those things aside, all of that kind of, and, and this is addressed even also, especially to the so-called skeptical community who are not skeptics, but who are, you know, they say, oh, this is, you know, and, and they're, so those are good people too, right? You know, a little caustic and satirical, but nonetheless, you know, but nice, these are, my dear friend, Paul Kurtz, I loved Paul. He was the founder of these psychops or, you know, the skeptics, as they incorrectly call themselves. They're humanists is what they are. And they don't even know who Pyrrho was. <laughs> and you can't be a skeptic unless you know who Pyrrho was. But, but anyway. Um, Raymond, just um, a few more questions, uh, if I may. And the one I, that my mom wanted me to ask, she yeah. was insistent, <laughs> was about judgment after death, right? Yeah. She said, as I was describing a little bit of the, the experiences people report, 
judgment wasn't in there. And she said something like, oh, there's got to be judgment. <laughs> but will you talk about whether or not there's judgment or what your take or understanding on that is? Yes, I do. And judgment, I would say, yes, definitely. Judgment. And that it's it that's people take it as judgment, which I, you know, I can understand that point of view. But I, in my case, I realized it was education. Hmm. And um, how should I put this? In near-death experiences, people say, I remember George Ritchie, who was raised in a sort of strict fundamentalist thing. And then he said, there he was at 20 years old, surrounded by all these, among other things, sexual indiscretions. Right. And they said in his religious background, that was, you know, that was sure to get you into hell. And so there he was and everything was out in the open and there he was in the presence of Christ. And I remember this in 1976, I think George looked at me and my wife. He was sort of reminiscing about this. And he said, there they all were. And he said, and he didn't even mention them. (laughs) Right. And um, so. It's it's number one, it's not focused on the things that people had imagined that it might be, like the sexual things or whatever. And I think that there is a conceptual breakdown in trying to it's normally the 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 missteps in life that that people who are like on the TV and uh programs so focused on everybody else going to hell, you know, that that kind of mentality. And it's usually from some doctrinal point. You know, I remember down in the South, it was the, there was a vile and hateful division among the Baptists. I swear this, like, and some believe that you had to baptize them with going upstream and others downstream. And he has major, you know, hatreds and everything. And um, so, you know, and it's not that, right? It's not anything about your doctrines, right? But it's what I hear. But, but you know, that's what the, the TV preachers and all try to tell you. Well, then that all goes away. I remember this, uh, this fundamentalist minister, one of the really, tough sex down in Georgia, was raised in it. And he said he he said in his life review, he said, I was surprised to find that God wasn't interested in my theology. He said, it's just he said, no, it's all about this love thing and what you so I mean it it gets very complex, but it is a conceptual gap to me to say that because of some ideological frac infraction during a period of um, you know several decades of life that you could be tormented for eternity and endless you know and, and that is that that has nothing to do with justice you know the image of justice is the blind fold and the scales. Yeah. But to put over here, you know, 30 years of ideological infringement and you know, over here, you know, eternal damnation, a bazillion years of tormentation. You know, that's right. that's just that's not justice. That's nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. right. so I'm getting at here. And and so this is what I think. Some years ago, I'm sort of making this vague to avoid hurting it. Some years back, I did an un, like a series of unkind things to a person over a period of time, and I was just unkind. Okay, and then years later, decades later, I find myself in the same situation. Only this time, <laughs> I'm the victim. <laughs> And not only that, that the, my tormentor is about 10 times. I mean, that makes sense to say it that way. I mean, really, about 10 times 
more volume, see. But that's part of the educational process. To turn up the volume, I get it, see. No. But it was education. Was I being punished? No. No. This was not something that altered the fabric of the universe. Was God punishing? God was educating how it felt. And all through this, I kept saying, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, enthusiastically, because you can't, you know, understand what you inflicted on somebody else until you experience it. It's just part of the education. It's a necessity that you've got to see the other side of that. Yeah, there's no teacher-like experience, no doubt. No doubt. And God is one of Okay. Well, if, um, if you're okay with it, what I'd like to do before we conclude is, um, is to transition our conversation. And there's so much more that, uh, I'd love to ask, but here we are in this human realm. It seems we are temporally limited. <laughs> so what I want to do is, um, I w- with your, with your blessing, to move to the enlightening lightning round, which is a series of it's 10 questions, but the aim is for them to be relatively quick. Okay. Okay. And then the last part, I just want to ask you two questions about writing. Okay. If that works, you good with that? I am. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I am so good. Yeah. Okay. 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 Question. So here we are in the enlightening lightning round. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a an educational movie with God as the screenwriter. Okay. Thank you. Question number two, what's something that you have changed your mind about maybe in the last few years? Well, one specific thing was I used to be sort of dismissive of people who, um, prayed, kneeled when they prayed, and I thought, how vain to act like you're flattering God, but then I had an experience myself of the presence of God, and I couldn't stand up, so I've changed my mind about that thing about kneeling to see where it came from. Okay, well, thank you for that. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the sure say? Keep guiding my life, God. Yeah. Okay. Question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Plato's Phaedo. Yeah. It's the, it's the beginning of the whole Western intellectual tradition about um, life after death. And it is the foundation point of the Christian theology of life after death, because that's why the early church fathers, they incorporated it. Okay. Uh, Question number five. So you have traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I must say that I'm such a homebody that travel is just always such a stress. I, I miss my family the whole time. I just really can't think of anything. I just have to grin and bear it. I don't like traveling. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And the older I get, the less I like it. <laughs> okay, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? What comes to my mind is that I stopped eating meat in my early 40s. And I regret to say it was not on principle of harm to the animals. It was just that I began to lose my appetite for meat and and began to appreciate more. It's like I noticed that after I ate meat, the next day I would feel good bad. So I just stopped eating meat mostly. But, you know, once in a while, if I have every six months, I have a craving. Yeah, but not much. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I have a feeling. I've never had any just effort of will needed about the exercise. I mean, I've just been an addict. I ran 10 to 14 miles every day in medical school. Wow. Walked from the track. 
But uh, I mean, that's just a concept. I got to not run anymore. I got to walk. Yeah. But I, I don't do it out of virtue. It's addiction. It's just addiction, pure and simple. <laughs> well, good for you for staying active. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew the lives very well of people like uh, Franklin and, uh, and Jefferson and Adams and Monroe. I mean, those were just rather almost preternatural people in a way. And to, it's like Ben Franklin's life is, I guess, the most fascinating life of anybody I know. So I think the, 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 to know about where the founders of this country, what kind of beings they were, for want of a better term. All right. Thank you for that. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? I am just not the person to say because I'm just so bad at it. I got to say, <laughs> but, um, I just, the older you get, the more you, it just, you lose interest in yourself. I'm just tired of Raymond Moody. And I say that to audiences. I see the young people with, he must be depressed, but the people like me, you know, age, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just ego equals pain. That's a simple formula. You know, it's, it's absolutely true. And that's not, I'm not saying that because I went up on the mountain and burned the incense and, you know, laid down on the bed of nails. It's just that it's like I, I just damn near kill myself with ego. But, you know, one ego trip is enough. That's what I've realized. I told that to a, a Swami, a Hindu Swami, a few years back. I said, one ego trip is enough. And he said, yeah, that's right. It is. You know, I mean, jealousy was mine. Well, you know, they're all kind of like dreams. They're so real when you're in them. Yeah. And once you're out of them, no, I don't want an ego trip anymore. So my, my strategy is to keep my, e uh, my self-esteem as low as possible. All right. Question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about money? Well, I learned it from my friend, Milton Friedman. And Milton, this is what Milton said. He said, money can make you rich. He was, one evening, this, this lady called him from Harvard, and she explained that she was doing her doctoral dissertation in economics on on monetary policy <laughs> and so he, she asked him if she would give he would give her a quotation for her dissertation and he said yes he said money can make you rich <laughs> and she said and she said can i quote you on that and she said yeah yeah and i'm sure he informed her but yeah, he was a, just a wonderful man. But, it, you know, there's a lot of truth to it. Money can make you rich. That much I know. Yeah, right on. <laughs> All right. Um, so question number 10 here in the enlightening lightning round is if people want to connect with you, assuming you're okay with them doing so, or they just want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? Well, there's several ways. I have a website, lifeafterlife.com. When my computer broke the other day and I took the crank off the side, I saw Thomas Edison's trademark in there. So I don't use the computer. Uh, but, I, you know, I am happy to give my home address for those who want to write personally. Um, yeah, and, and happy to do this. This, this is uh, 5881 Old Summerwood Boulevard, Sarasota, Florida. Three, four, two, three, two. Raymond Moody, Old Summerwood Boulevard, um, Sarasota, Florida, uh, and that zip code. And then I have a website, lifeafterlife.com. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, and one thing I want to let you know is that as an expression of gratitude to you for sharing so generously of your time and your experience and your wisdom today, um, I have made a micro loan to an entrepreneur, a woman 
in Indonesia. Her name is Rosita. She's 43 years old. She's married. She has a daughter. She runs a business selling food. And so this loan, I won't make any interest on it, but the person who facilitated it in Indonesia will, and hopefully it will be part of a virtuous cycle and doing some good in the world. So thank you for giving me a reason to make that micro loan. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Yeah. So sweet of you. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's my pleasure. Well, the last, the very last part of the interview here is, as I said, I just have two questions about writing. And uh, the first question is maybe kind of a broad question. So feel free to answer it in any way you want, but it's, would you be willing to so now you've written many, many books, more than a dozen, as I understand. Right. And uh, so my question for you is, would you describe for me and people listening, what's your process? How do you, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you go about actually completing a book? Well, I can describe my process and I can also uh, give you a statement by the Paracelsus, the founder of iatrochemistry. Okay. Um, and about that. And he said, and I'm sorry about the, you know, the, the old language and the gender thing. But what he said was a man who desires to write a book first creates a sort of heaven in his mind from which the work he desires flows into. And that's apropos. I'm sure a lot of people will respond to that because that's how I've, I've used that over the years. And a lot of people say right on. And I see the point in it, too. And maybe that's not exactly the way I would put it. But this is how I would put it. It's it's that number one, the, the creative process is just the greatest thrill there is. It's just like that flow of creativity. It's just the height of once you get into that flow. Wow. Right. And and then you can really appreciate the Greek views of the muses. Right. Because it doesn't seem to come from you or from here. Either. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's great. Thank, thank you for for sharing that. So the last the last um I realized I said I had two questions about writing, but I, I do have two final questions. So one is just if there's anything I know in this almost two hour conversation, we've covered a lot of ground, but I wonder, so I'll just tell you the two last questions now and you can address them in any order. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about that you think would be of service to, to people listening? That's, that's one question. The last one is what advice or encouragement would you leave anybody listening with to help them? complete their own creative endeavor. So those two things, final kind of a final thought and, and encouragement, those two things. My, when I am working on topic a, right. I've usually read quite a bit on topic a, but when I start writing and in the, just think the launching into the gradual writing project on topic A. I don't read on topic A. I read on peripheral topics. And I developed a year, years ago a process, and I stick almost invariably to it maybe once in a great while I relapse, but I finally into it where I don't, I just, I ask God to guide me. And my read. See, I'm just like, and it's funny how things just pop up. And then, for example, um, I'm writing now on just different views of the afterlife around the world and uh, the different cultural views, which I don't know much about. And so I just saw an advertisement at the University of Chicago for this book entitled Gloves. Well, I'm interested in everything. Gloves, that's something I've read about. I've never <laughs> thought about or read about. So I got this book on gloves. And oh, my God, in addition to all these other things, like the image of a lost glove. Once you got the image of the gloves, then you're always going to be seeing lost gloves everywhere you look. 
Yeah. Right? And, the and then you see the phrases and uh, gloves are not gloves through the centuries and all right. And all of these fascinating things in themselves. And then I read that this tribe in Alaska of I knew it, I guess, had a dance which took you over to the other side. And it was through gloves. They had these magnificent gloves made and the the little the clickers on them were made of the beaks of burrs that when the shamans would shake them in a certain way, they'd create this apparently unearthly noise where sound which would just sweep them away into the afterlife, which is like the shamanic procedure, right? So see what I mean is that I just, I read all around the topic and then every, it's like, then you see, oh, it makes the, the writing process so much richer yeah. to, to just have all this information, which may not, you know, how could that be connected? But all of a sudden it is. Wow. Amazing. Well, Raymond, I have really uh, enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed reading uh, the, the books I mentioned, paranormal and God is bigger than you think God is bigger than the Bible. Right. Um, Final thought, final encouragement. What would you, what do you leave listeners with that might help them either get started on a creative project they've been ideating on for a long time, or maybe they're in the middle of, and for whatever reason, haven't brought it to completion just yet. Prayer is, uh, you know, it's like, I just, it's, uh, and the prayer of surrender. It's not, like, not God get me started and doing step one day but just like to turn it over it's uh i just made that discovery myself and i just like i was wrestling with this problem and i just like just obsessed and it's going on and i finally i just turned it over to god god you fixed it and then it all just sort of happened it just went away and so i was telling george ritchie that and he said the most powerful prayer is surrender yeah, that, that makes, that makes sense. And it doesn't seem any more, it seems logical to me that one might pray to God for a word. If one believes that God is the creator of everything, why wouldn't God be willing to? Yeah, and it's also kind of a companion. It, yeah, absolutely. It's just a continuation of that, of that initial work. Yeah. Friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Raymond, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just repeating that I've really enjoyed this. Um, I look forward to the time our paths cross again next. I don't know when it will be, but I, I, I feel confident it will happen. And, uh, if you find yourself in Salt Lake, please do let me know if it works for your schedule. I'd love to connect with you in person. Same here. And, and thanks. Love to everybody listening to this folks. And thank you so much. And hope you've gotten something out of it. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning 
so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.